Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap at the end of the week, uh, featuring my good friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts, who's going to be a little bit exhausted at the end of this week, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad I'm actually off next week. I've got my spring break, so trust me, I need it. So, <laughs> okay. Well deserved, though. Yeah. Um, before you take off, though, Lance, uh, we're going to be pulling you in tomorrow or actually today for the folks that are watching this when it right. launches on Saturday um, for uh, the Wealthion Conference. Folks, if you're watching this, instead of being at the conference, we miss you. Uh, if you determine you really wish you had made the conference, no, not to worry, you can actually purchase replay videos of the entire event, all the presentations, uh, all the live Q&As the day after the events. That would be Sunday if you're watching this on Saturday, the day this gets released. You can just go over to Wealthion dot com slash conference and purchase those replay videos there. Um, also, Lance, just want to say happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, but yeah. let's dive in. Um, week, uh, very volatile week in the markets. But interestingly, it's kind of ending uh, S&P around the same price it opened the week at. Uh, so we didn't make too much progress one way or the other on, on a net basis. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on the week. But let me read this one quote from Yahoo Finance, and then you can incorporate your reaction into your response. Yeah. Um, they said the shock collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and the turmoil engulfing Credit Suisse have demolished the pillars holding up the market's broad narrative for 2023. Do you agree with that statement? That may be a little bit over the top, but yeah, you know, look, there's obviously, you know, look, you'll go back to January. Uh, this market had a very, very big run since January. Everybody was getting very bullish. The, you know, the entire premise was, you know, the Fed's going to pivot now and we're very close to the pivot. That's going to be good for stocks. And look, we've been on, you know, you and I have been talking about this for the last year that, you know, all these rate hikes that were coming into the system is just a function of time until they broke something. Well, it finally broke something. And, you know, and not surprisingly, as we've said before, and I've published charts after chart after chart of this is showing Fed funds rates versus every previous, you know, recession, crisis, event in the economy. And, you know, there's always this talk about, oh, well, there's, you know, the Fed's going to engineer a soft landing this time. They've never had a soft landing. A soft landing is when there's no recession. But every other time that the Fed was hiking rates that didn't end in a recession, there was some type of event like, you know, you know the savings and loan crisis or the bond market crash in 94 or a whole variety of other, other events. And that's all caused by tightening monetary policy too much. And that's what the Fed has done. And as we've, as we've discussed, you know, this is what was interesting is we've talked about this whole lag effect, right? And I think we may have touched on this last week, but- I think we've you know, touched on it every week, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> but this lag effect is very interesting because the Fed started, their first rate hike was March 15th of 2022. Here we are exactly one year later, the first rate hike comes through and you have a bank crisis. So there's still 450 basis points of rate hikes that are still floating out there in the system waiting to come through here. So, you know, it's, it's, this isn't surprising. Um, we've been talking about the risk of this occurring. And of course, it was interesting to see how fast the Fed pivoted to immediately start applying liquidity back to the markets. In just one week, they reversed one third of the entire quantitative tightening process that they started last June. So that's where we are right now. Okay, um, I'm going to ask kind of a follow-up on the same theme. So um, you and I have been watching the markets duke it out for the past, I don't know, month and a half now at the sort of 4,000 line for S&P, um, which we're still pretty close to at this point in time. 
Um, but it's interesting. Any given week, um, like the bookies had a, had you know different odds on who was going to win from this thing. Some <laughs> yeah. weeks looked like the Bears. Some weeks looked like the Bulls. And and I think you know relatively recently, you know, two weeks ago before, so two the week before last week when the whole Silicon Valley Bank thing went on, you know, you were saying, hey, look, the technicals are all of a sudden flipping pretty green here, right? Um, and then we had the you know hand grenade of of the the, ba <laughs> the banking system weakness get tossed into this um and i think if i remember correctly you said um you know let's see what happens the following week because if they're able to sort of step in and rescue things here relatively quickly markets are very oversold they just got even oversolder because of the panic around this stuff and there could just be a reflexive pretty big rally here right that didn't materialize. And so I'm just curious from a technical standpoint right now, what what are they telling you? Is there still yeah, you know, well, a good amount of that risk in there of, of a surprise to the upside here? Well, two things. One, we actually did get a rally this week. Uh, you know, if, if you look at Monday through Thursday, the markets were well off their lows. Uh, in fact, we had a very big day on Thursday. Now the market gave up a big chunk of that. If you'll allow, if you'll share the screen with me real quick. So, you know, what's interesting is, is if you take a look over here, this is where we had defended that rising trend line. And then we had bounced off of that um, uh, week before last. And then, of course, last week was where you see these kind of these initial candle days of what you and I were talking about was this whole, you know, uh, Senate banking testimony that came from the from uh, Jerome Powell. And, you know, saying, look, we're going to keep hiking rates. This is a much more, you know, bigger problem for the Fed right now is higher inflation. We'll keep hiking rates. And that sent that market below that rising trend line support, broke through the 200 day moving average. And, and to your point, rightly so, what I said was, is we've got to be a little careful of this because when you initially break a support level, what you're looking for is for it to confirm that break to the downside. And kind of a rule of thumb is to give it a week. And if it stays below that level for a week, then, well, you've got a confirmed break. Well, interestingly, on Thursday, we had a very big rally in the markets. We actually got above the 200-day moving average again, had, had reversed that sell signal, but then gave it back up on Friday. So we do now have a confirmed break of that 200-day moving average. So uh, part of that process of breaking those technical supports, we raised more cash this past week. Um, you know, last week we had sold financials and, and this week we reduced uh, uh, basic materials and energy and other economically sensitive sectors um, because of what, what's going on now in the market. So just getting a little bit more defensive here. Didn't sell everything. Obviously, we still have some exposure, particularly in the tech sector, which is where money is rotating to uh, for safety because these big tech companies like Apple and Google, they can grow earnings in a weaker economy. So money is gravitating over there for safety right now. Um, within within the equity confines, um, technology is very overbought now. So I wouldn't be buying you know uh, technology today. We'll get a little bit more into that uh, later this uh, later here on our conversation. But but clearly though we we've, we've done something negative for the market that now changes the narrative back into the favor of the bears at least short term. Okay, so. Um, uh... That's what's happening in the markets. I want to just do a quick dial through what has happened this week on the policy side, just sure. so folks have a you know decent understanding of, of kind of where things stand as of right now. And, and understandably, it's probably been a pretty confusing story to follow um, for most people. Um, so uh, first, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which we were talking about last Friday, 
I think we were talking about it hours after uh, the FDIC had had stepped in and taken over um, that bank. Yep. Uh, it's been taken over by the FDIC. We found out over the weekend that also another bank, Signature Bank, uh, was taken over as well. Uh, that bank's not quite as big as Silicon Valley Bank. I think it's about half the size. But but just to put things into perspective, Silicon Valley Bank's failure was the second largest bank failure ever uh, in history. And and it's it's a pretty big bank um, relative to what what was whatever was number third previously. Signature, I believe, is now easily the number third. Right. So. Right. We've had more bank failures now in this round, this very early start round, than we had in all of the global financial crisis here in the states. Right. Um, uh, banks. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm putting off to the side there. Um, okay. So um, they've been taken over. Um, the Fed and the Treasury and the FDIC, working obviously probably throughout all the last weekend, came out and they announced um, basically two things. Um, they announced that all the depositors in those two banks were going to be made whole, right? And what's so important about that is both those banks had a tremendously large percentage of uninsured depositors. These are people that had money on deposit in the bank above the 250000 FDIC limit. Um, and a lot of those, at least in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they were, were companies. You know, they were companies that had tens, hundreds of millions in one company's uh, circle had like 3.3 billion there, right? So a lot of that, those deposits were unsecured, um, which typically don't necessarily get made hold when a bank fails. But the Fed and, and this, this team came in and said, don't worry, they're all going to be, you know, made good 100% of the dollar. That has raised a really interesting question, which is right now remains unanswered because the Fed is in its quiet period, its, its media blackout period before its upcoming FOMC meeting. And of course, the question that's asked, that's it's raised is, hey, is, is that just for these two banks or is that gonna be for every bank going forward? Now, is every depositor fully guaranteed in full? They yeah. also announced the bank term funding program. I wanna to talk to you in a second, but you look like you wanna say something about that, Lance. So I'll let you respond. Hey, that, no, every, every, every depositor is not covered by that. It is this one bank. And what's interestingly enough is about this is that the depositors in this bank that run insured are largely Democratic contributors to campaigns. So one of the big questions is now coming up uh, in, in Congress is this rush to bail out Silicon Valley Bank. Was it actually a rush to bail out a banking situation or was it a rush to bail out large depositors that were donors to political campaigns? So this is going to cause a real a real riff here potentially going forward. In fact, Janet Yellen was grilled on uh, Capitol Hill yet on Friday, saying, "Hey, look, uh, one of the one of the uh, senators that was grilling her, he's from Oklahoma. He says, are all my depositors in Oklahoma guaranteed?" And she's like, "No, they're not. Um, this was specific. That bailout was specific to this one specific bank. So you know, and and here's the well, problem: two, two, two specific banks, but yes, yeah, two, but." primarily Silicon Valley Bank. Um, now, interestingly enough, if you take a look at the vast majority of banks, um, and, and these are rough numbers, just, you know, don't, don't just kind of rule a thumb thing. About 90, think about the, the breakdown of wealth in the country, right? So the top 10% of income earners have about 90% of the wealth, the bottom 90% have the bottom 10. So in most, when you look across the vast majority of banks, their depositors, about 90% of them are insured because they're below that $250,000 limit. 
Most people don't have that much money in the bank. In those banks, about 10% of depositors are above or or, are uninsured uh, in those banks. And look, that's the risk the depositor takes. If the depositor chooses to put in more money than you're insured for, that's on you. That is not on the taxpayer. That is not on the bank. That is on you. That is your responsibility for taking on that kind of risk. In Silicon Valley Bank, it was inverted. 90% of the depositors were uninsured. 10% were insured. So this was clearly a bailout of uninsured depositors. And now you've got to ask you, you've got to start asking yourself the reason why were you bailing out venture cap back, back cap venture capital backed funds primarily, which were those depositors in that bank? Who were you actually bailing out? Were you bailing out hedge funds and venture capitalists, or were you bailing out a bank? The reality is, is they were bailing, bailing out venture capital funds in California primarily that had big, heavy deposits in those banks through the companies that they had, had, had done the venture capital backing for. So, that, so this is a very interesting situation because in reality, you should just let the uninsured depositors get hit. That's again, that's their problem and you shouldn't bail them out. Now, one of the things that was says like, well, this isn't a taxpayer funded bailout. It is a taxpayer funded bailout because where does the money come from ultimately? FDIC, where do they get their fees from? They get their fees from the transactions that occur at banks. Where does SIPC get their money from? Every time you buy or sell a security, a couple of cents of every transaction goes into SIPC and funds that that that's, uh, protection for those accounts. So all of this ultimately comes from the taxpayer because the taxpayer will eventually have to pay for this in, in one form or the other because that's where the money always comes from. You can't just print money out of thin air. Somebody has to pay for it. So, you know, this is going to be a very interesting situation come the next political cycle as well. Well, I, I think it really will be for a whole bunch of reasons. And like you said, <clears throat> you know, there, there are some understandable reasons why the authorities wanted to try to avoid yeah. a, 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 no, a, yeah. a, ba- a bank run panic coming out. Like yeah. you can, what, we made <laughs> this wrong. This. <laughs> wrong. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to defend exactly what happened, but I'm saying that you can make an argument to say, look, you know, the morning after, and I, I can tell from tell you from out here in the Bay Area, like if you would ask people two weeks ago, hey, a bank out here is going to fail. Pick which one you think is going to fail. Silicon Valley Bank probably would have been at the bottom of the list, right? Mm-hmm. So when something like that dies overnight, understandably, a lot of people are saying, well, Jesus, how do I know my bank's safe, right? And you have that fear that could create a bank run, right? And you're seeing that happen now at First Republic Bank, which is another bank out here in the Bay Area that's you know very similarly set up like Silicon Valley Bank was. Um, <clears throat> but no matter how you slice it, this was a bailout of those big VCs. So totally agree with you there. It's going to raise a lot of issues. I had interviewed Pedro da Costa, who follows the Fed. He was a journalist who covers them. And two, as of two days ago, he said he didn't know exactly whether this thing was a one-off or if it was an inferred blanket to future deposits. This that may interview might have happened before Janet Yellen spoke, so that's an interesting piece of news. Obviously, we'll hopefully get clarity next week when the the Fed can has its press release uh, prior, uh, following the FOMC meeting. But even if it's only a one-off here, that still raises the whole like, hey. Here you are giving the privileged class a special, you know, get out of jail free skate card here, right? Yeah. No, look, and if, it, if, if Silicon Valley Bank had been a $2 billion bank, nobody would have gotten bailed out. This is uh, the only reason Silicon Valley Bank got bailed out and First Republic, by the way. So we, we need to cover that real quick. First Republic Bank got, got a quasi bailout. 
11 major banks got together and deposited $30 billion uninsured into First Republic Bank. Now, why would the banks do that? Look, JP Morgan and Bank of America and Wells Fargo, these banks are predatory. They are not sitting around going, oh, let me help a competitor out of a bad spot. No, they would have preferred to pick over the carcass of First Republic Bank and have let it fail. Uh, by the way, Silicon Valley Bank has now filed Chapter 11, uh, just FYI. So they would have preferred to allow First Republic Bank to go bankrupt and then just pick over the carcass, buy the loans off, you know, anything bad debt, just let it sit there, let the Fed absorb it, whatever. But the Federal Reserve and, and nobody, and, and this hasn't been, this isn't public knowledge, but it only makes complete sense, is that the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen were on the phone with these 11 banks going, hey, we need you to make these deposits. Right. And don't worry, we'll ensure you're, even though the deposit is unsure, we will make sure that you get your $30 billion back. Right. That's the, but see, this is the only way that they could bail that bank out because now we're getting past the limit of even what the BTFP program was set up for because there's only a $25 billion backstop in by the treasury in the BTFB program. So 30, 30 billion, you already passed it. Yeah. So, okay. So you're, you're, you're jumping through my list here, which is good, but let's explain for people what happened. So when, after this past weekend, the fed, the treasury and the FDIC said, okay, we're, we're making those depositors whole at those banks. So everybody don't worry, calm down. Don't make a run in your bank. Right. We're here to help we're from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> um, and then they announced this, this bank term funding program, uh, the BTFP, which I'm sure you got the same chuckle I did, Lance, that this sounds an awful lot like um, BTFD, right? <laughs> um, and the first thing I thought, which you were just sort of riffing on here when I heard it was $25 billion. Like, isn't that way too small? Like there's yeah. there's like 18 trillion of uh, deposits at banks. Right. Yeah. And like this is this is not even a drop in a drop of the bucket. Like if there's a real problem, this thing's going to vaporize in a heartbeat. And you just mentioned the the bailout of uh, First Republic is already greater than that. Right. Um, well, it, and I've been talking to a lot of folks about this. And I just want to underscore that um, uh, Daniel D. Martino Booth, who I recorded yesterday for the conference, um, she and I have been continuing the discussion and she's we're, we're going to get in a minute to some of the additional bridge loans that have been um, offered by the FDIC and the usage of the discount window. She's basically saying, look, what's going on here is big, all in capital letters. Like this is not a small little, this is no longer about the failure of one bank that was overextended. Like all of a sudden this is revealing really big rot inside the banking system. Sorry, go ahead. By the way, no, no, no. That, and, and by the way, that's that's a very good point. So yeah, there, there's two parts of the BTFP program. So the first part is basically about $2 trillion of quote unquote QE. It's not QE, but it's QE. It's expanding the balance sheet. As I said earlier, just in the last week, we've already reversed um, one third of all the quantitative tightening on the Fed's balance sheet from last June. There was $152 billion drawn out of the Fed discount window in a week. If all the banks that are probably on the ropes have to draw on that window. Now, now, normally the discount window is something banks don't want to draw because if you draw on the discount window, everybody assumes that there's something wrong. Right. As, as Danielle said, it's like basically, you know, like covering yourself in blood and jumping into a shark infested ocean. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And all the big banks are going, oh, you're at the discount window. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go. 
Um, but so that, the, but the draws in that discount window could be as large as $2 trillion. Uh, if you think about all the uninsured deposits that are sitting out there. So, you know, you're potentially talking about $2 trillion worth of liquidity getting pumped back into the banking system. And we had only reduced the, the Fed's balance sheet by about $600 billion. So, I mean, you know, it, it's, a you know, just very rapidly, we're going to be talking about expanding the, the Fed's balance. In fact, I'm writing an article about this right now is that you know, this Fed's QE, not QE thing um, is potentially going to inject a whole lot of liquidity back in markets. Okay, so now the, so the BTFP program, a bank can, can draw from the Fed. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. So Silicon Valley Bank did not have bad collateral, right? And we talked about this last week. Yep. The collateral is all treasuries. The problem was is that when interest rates went up, the value of that collateral fell. So they had 100 cents on the dollar in bonds when they bought them, but they'd fallen in price to 90 cents on the dollar. Just rough math. So when all the depositors came in and said, hey, I want my money back, there wasn't enough collateral to meet those withdrawal demands. That's the, the, the part of fractional reserve banking that goes bad when you have a bank, bank run. What the, what the Federal Reserve did is normally I can lend money to the, to the Fed and they say, okay, I'm going to give you a percentage of that collateral. I'm not going to give you 100 cents on the dollar in case you don't pay me back. You know, I've got some excess collateral. Well, what the Fed said was, is no, we'll give you 100 cents on the dollar. So no matter, and we talked about mark to market accounting last week, you know, but we'll give you 100 cents on the dollar for this collateral. Now, so now the banks have borrowed this money. Now that 25 billion that the treasury put up, that's a guarantee of payment back to the Fed if the, if the loan isn't repaid. So there's two parts to that program, but it's 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 a big program in terms of bailing out the banks because you know as we've said before is that you know every year we get these Fed stress tests they come out and they go oh yeah well if you have you know unemployment jump to X percent or if interest rates go up to Y percent or the economy slows to Z percent the banks are fine they're completely capitalized it's all great. Well, that was because it was all marked. To, there was no mark to market accounting. Everything is priced at face value. So, yeah, they look well capitalized. The reality is, Bank of America is one of the worst capitalized banks, but there's a lot of banks that are well below tier one capital requirements when you mark to mark their book. And, and, and to Danielle's point, and this is what we've been saying for a long time if, if the financial system was as well capitalized as what the Fed is always telling us it is, why do we have to keep bailing them out every single time there's a problem in the economy? And that should tell you all you need to know about how well capitalized banks are. Okay, so you are getting dangerously close to the rant I want to have at the end of this video, but it's really pretty much right on that theme. Um, so uh, let me just see here, uh, what haven't we mentioned? Uh, so you talked about the um, 153 billion rounding up yeah. that's been barred from the discount window this week. Um, the Fed has also made, um, oh, I don't have the number here, but it's like a hundred, another 142 billion in bridge loans uh, yeah. to the FDIC. Um, yeah. And that's a lot of what's raising the Fed's uh, balance sheet at this point in time, right? It was it went up by about three hundred uh, billion, and that's that, that's about what yeah. you get right there. Um, so, uh, one thing I want to note here, which you've been sort of dancing around, is 
smaller banks are really vulnerable here or they're, 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 they are the most vulnerable here at the moment. And when I say small banks, yes, I mean like small, tiny banks, but like Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Republic Bank, like th those are in the smaller vulnerable category I'm talking about. And Silicon Valley Bank was what, like the 17th largest bank in the yep. country, right? Yep. So by small, I mean almost everybody outside of the top like 10 or 12 at this point in time. Um, they have the majority of the uninsured deposits, right? When you collectively add them up here, um, they have, uh, they're suffering from the same duration imbalance uh, as Silicon Valley Bank was. Silicon Valley Bank had, had terrible uh, risk management, risk control. So, you know, they, they, it's, it's understandable why they died soonest here, but, but that pressure is being felt industry-wide, right? If I've been borrowing short and lending long, and that worked great while the Fed had us at ZERP. But now that the Fed all of a sudden totally ranked up uh, interest rates, we're, we're, we're upside down in that trade, right? So they've got that vulnerability. Um, as you said last week, most of them don't have any um, revenue diversification um, from other business lines to protect them here, right? So like JP Morgan, if it's having issues in its banking division, well, it's got investment banking, it's got trade, it's got a whole bunch of other things that bring in income to kind of cushion that blow. These regional banks don't. Um, I think in general, they they suffer from less trust when people get really scared, right? Hey, I'm going to put my money in JP Morgan or Bank of America if I'm worried, if I want to keep it in the banking system versus small random bank X. And we're seeing exactly that, right? I mean, JP Morgan and, and a lot of these other banks have said, hey, we've seen tons of inflows over the past uh, week and a half from this. Um, there these small banks are also suffering, and I'm getting up to one big risk here in a second. These, these smaller banks are also suffering from the pull of capital out of them by higher rates being offered by safer vehicles. So I've talked about Treasury Direct. You've talked about money market accounts uh, at brokerages, right, where you can get both higher yields and higher insurance protection. And consumers are waking up to that, right? And so they're pulling their money out, which is exacerbating the situation for these banks. Now, the other big thing that they're focused or that they're vulnerable to is uh, when you look at m most different types of loans, the big banks have much bigger uh, total balances than the smaller banks. But collectively, the smaller banks have way bigger exposure to the commercial real estate lending market yeah. and that's like a massive ticking time bomb right you know that's, it's a world of hurt coming to that space those loans are in great danger in many cases of defaulting and they are largely owned by these small banks and so there very well may be some other big shoes dropping in this story that could really create a big conflagration in in the banking system here you're you're nodding as i'm saying this yeah no no and that's what i was saying though but you know unfortunately a lot of those smaller banks aren't going to get bailed out um you know, again, this goes back to the problem that we have, you know, in our financial system that we just keep making worse and worse. And we talked about this last week is that, you know, the top five banks made up, you know, 30 percent of the banking sector uh, of the entire financial sector pre-financial crisis. Then they became 50 percent after the financial crisis. And, you know, by the time this is over, it'll probably be 70, 80 percent of the, of the banking sector. So we just keep kind of concentrating the banking sector into these criminal enterprises called banks that, you know, have really done, you know, a disservice to depositors. You know, we can just go through all the stuff with Wells Fargo and Bank America and predatory practices that they've done to, to, to retail, you know, clients because they, they don't care about the retail client because they're actually a cost center versus a profit center. But, 
you know, these community banks, these small little regional banks, they provide a very valuable service to their communities, to their depositors, uh, to small businesses around the country that precisely go to them to do, you know, hey, I want to buy some rental properties. I want to build an office space. I want to be build a retail center. That's the that's these banks that provide that capital uh, to these individuals, and that's what keeps the economy going. We we you know we talk about monetary velocity, which is how fast money moves through the economy. Well, that starts with the bank borrowing money and then lending it out to businesses and individuals, et cetera, to buy houses, build businesses, whatever it is. But we, are, we don't protect those little banks because they're not systemically important. See, the only reason we bailed out Silicon Valley Bank is because it would have disrupted the financial sector all of a sudden because big depositors would have lost all their money. You know, I, I beg you that, and we talked about this before, you should let Silicon Valley Bank go bankrupt. You should let depositors lose their money. I know that sounds really harsh. And yes, it would cause a flight to safety out of other banks. And, and yeah, today, mobile, we talked about last week, you know, the big problem for banks is on the mobile phone right now. I can transfer my money immediately and we right. can all do it one time. But if you allow that to happen, guess what banks will stop doing if you allow that to happen? You know, if you let Silicon Valley Bank go bankrupt, all of a sudden the other banks go, I better get my act together right. and, and short my balance sheet post fast, right? Get it done now. And if you did, you know, again, we would start making the financial sector a whole lot stronger. And it's such a very big component of our economy. It's a huge component of our economy and it's critical to the economy. And this is why financial uh, stability is so very important. We've got to start getting that back in shape. We do not have a healthy financial banking system. We have not had it since the financial crisis because of the fact that we keep establishing this precedent that we're going to bail out anybody that is big enough that they could cause damage if they go bankrupt. You know, it's the old saying, Adam, that, you know, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar loan, it's your problem. If you've got a million dollar loan, it's the bank's problem. Yeah. That's how we run this country. And that's not healthy. And it's also not economically productive. So I just want to add to that. I'm going to put up a chart here from a recent report that Daniel uh, published, which <clears throat> it's a chart of uh, the FDIC insured um, banks, uh, commercial banks uh, in America uh, from the start of the, the new millennium until now. Um, and you'll see it's basically been cut in half. Mm -hmm. And that basically has been of these smaller regional banks largely just shuddering, you know, either getting gobbled up by a bigger bank, but in many cases, uh, actually just shuddering because a lot of the the regulations that were put in place, like Dodd-Frank that was put in place after the global financial crisis, the cost of compliance is so right. onerous for these small guys uh, that a lot of times they just say, look, I can't do it anymore. This is an unprofitable business. I'm, I'm getting out of here, right? So to your point, Lance, like we have been punishing and disadvantaging these smaller regional banks that we desperately need to have a resilient banking system. Uh, and instead, every single solution that, that gets pushed through, voila, ends up in you know, the too big to fail banks getting too bigger to failer, right? And these smaller <laughs> guys just dying. Yeah. And, and, that, and that's the problem. And seeing that, and therein lies the lesson, right? If you're that big, right, then you should be able to weather your own storm, right? So if you get into trouble, you know, it's like, hey, JP Morgan, you're in trouble. Sorry, that's on you. You know, go figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, 
we will break you up and take all your depositors and we'll insure your depositors and put them with other banks. Basically, you're gone. Um, and then once you start laying out that, that premise for these big banks, all of a sudden they're going to change their attitude real quick about how much risk they take. And yes, that has some implications to other sides of the economy. Uh, they will restrict some lending. They won't, be, they won't be willing to make dubious loans and a lot of high risk loans that will, that will get shored up. Uh, so yeah, money flow will slow down within the economy to some degree, but it will be a safer flow of money into the economy. And that'll help the economy become stronger, but it will also strengthen the rest of the, of the banks in the, in the community and allow them a place to grab a foothold and grab business within that environment as well. So, you know, so this is, this is what I'm saying is like, you have to allow capitalism to work and we just keep avoiding the outcome of letting capitalism work. We keep stopping it short of letting it work. And if you would let it work, we would start to solve, it would be very painful. It would be bad, but the outcome of it would be much healthier for the economy long term. Yeah, and this this is kind of the classic application of the analogy of the forestry management, right? Which okay. is you have to do controlled burns because if you don't and you just prevent fires from happening at all in the forest, it just builds up to a point where the inevitable fire does happen and it's way more catastrophic than it otherwise needed to be. California yeah. is a good example of that. We're a good example of a lot of bad things. <laughs> Don't agree that that quickly, Lance. Um, all right. So um, I, I just want to flag, we mentioned it super briefly, but um, look, Silicon Valley Bank, not a systemically important bank, you know, politically connected one. Sure. Again, as I said, you don't have to agree with me, Lance, but as I said, you know, the, the risk there was that it freaked out enough people to then make um, bank runs on their own, you know, smaller local banks. And, and just one note I want to say about this, because it is important, like that is a real fear. If I'm a central planner, that is a fear of mine, because any good bank can be brought down by a bank run if it's big enough, right? So you want to try to small prevent- enough. Pardon me? Yeah, I mean, even small banks can get brought down by a bank run. So- Oh, no, I, I, I'm yeah. saying any bank. I mean, yeah. any big bank, any bank could be brought, if the bank run is big enough, it could be brought down. So you want to try to not have bank runs occur if it's not necessary, right? So I get that part. But but Silicon Valley Bank, you know, if it just vaporized the next day, a lot of people would be hurt, but it wouldn't like it wouldn't create a contagion that would cascade through the plumbing of the banking system. I want to contrast that to Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse is a big bank, uh, massive bank in Europe. And the way the banking system operates is, uh, you know, all these banks hold you know, a gargantuan number of derivatives and they hold each other's paper and whatnot. And if you get a big bank like Credit Suisse going down, the ripple effects from that, you know, could be extremely threatening to the stability of the entire system in ways that we just don't know yet, right? So um, I want to get your reaction to that real quickly. Um, maybe I'll, I'll mention before you do, uh, the Swiss National Bank just announced uh, that they are offering a $54 billion lifeline uh, to, to Credit Suisse which will probably keep it alive for a bit longer. But as you and I know, Lance, this has been a patient that has been on life support like forever at some point. And, uh, and, and, this, and this, is, this is a really good example of what I'm talking about because yeah, Credit Suisse is Lehman Brothers technically, right? I mean, it's now when you talk about systemically important financial institutions, that is Credit Suisse. What's the difference between Silicon Valley Bank and, and Credit Suisse? Credit Suisse has you know, a massive amount of derivative trades. Again, so now we go back to talk about 
to different types of banks. Silicon Valley Bank was just making loans to people, right? And they were uh, shoveling venture capital money through their bank. And that was pretty much it. First Republic Bank, they just make loans to people. They just had a lot of them. They don't do investment banking and trading and all this other stuff that we talked uh, that we talked about. These other lines of business, Credit Suisse does, and they have a tremendous hundreds of billions of dollars worth of credit derivatives, credit default swaps, currency swaps. All these things are sitting out there, and all these different instruments are tied to other major banks that do that same type of business. So J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, UBS, uh, you know. Uh, Lloyd's Bank, keep going, right? You know, just all these big major banks around the, around the globe. So if Credit Suisse goes under, and this was, now we have to go back to 2008 real fast. In 2008, market's coming down, Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy. That's not the end of the world. What caused the, the massive decline in the markets was that nobody trusted anybody else at that moment to do business with. And so credit stopped. There was no trading of anything going on right after Lehman filed bankruptcy because nobody knew who to trust and, and nobody knew who was next on the list to go under. That's Credit Suisse. They are the Lehman Brothers of the system. The $54 billion that was provided to Credit Suisse is a drop in the bucket. It is not nearly enough to fix their problem. But th to your point, Adam, this has been a contagion problem ever since 2008. And they keep getting bailouts and supports and workarounds and everything else to stay in business. This bank should have been unwound over the last 10 years slowly, but surely they should have been downsized and unwound and gotten rid of that problem out of the system because now they're, they're back in the limelight. And if you don't fix that problem, you're going to have a real problem in the credit markets. Right. And, and one thing that, that I think we've said in the past and, and definitely experts on this channel have, um, and Pedro was saying it right before the latest headlines about Credit Suisse came out, which is, look, you know, like he's like, look, everybody, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, your your money's fine. If you've got money in a regular bank, it's going to be fine. You know, you're under the FDIC limit. Like it's, you're going to be okay, highly likely. Um, but he's like, you know, the problem is, as we've said, you know, when when there's a policy move here in the U.S. that's strong, we feel it strongly, but the rest of the world feels it at an amplified degree, to an amplified degree. And what might happen is. You know the shockwave here may be so great elsewhere that it might break something systemically important there that then comes back to, as contagion here. And Credit right. Suisse may be an example of that, right? Yeah. No, they're, yeah. they're Credit Suisse is a real problem. Um, you know, if they they're you know maybe this bailout's enough. I doubt it. There probably doesn't have to be more bailouts of it. But at some point, you got to figure out what to do with that bank because again, they have just they've been in trouble for a long time. Uh, the stock price will tell you all you need to know, <laughs> you know, and and somebody should have woken up a long time ago and say, hey, we need to start slowly working on this bank problem and getting it solved before something ultimately blows up. And because because, again, all it took was higher interest rates to bring all these banks to their needs. But that's always the problem because all these banks are dependent upon credit. And so when you're dependent on credit at zero rates and rates go up, nothing good comes out of that. Okay, so that is a great segue to my next set of questions here. Um, really, one big one, which is what are the Fed's options from here? You know, and, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying I, I talked with Danielle about this, and she, if I can condense what I believe her position is, is you know we've been kicking the can and kicking the can and kicking the can, 
And we're now at a point where the road is, it, it's like a, it's a binary fork. <laughs> yeah. And Powell has to really like super man up and kill the Fed put with all the pain that that would bring. Um, and basically sort of, you know, fix the system to a certain extent in the way that you and I would love to have happen. Or she says, he just opens the door to essentially currency destruction at the end of the day, where it's just like, because it, it, if we go back to QE and just start doing everything here again, and we've kind of given everybody the impression that like, hey, everything's going to be backstop. She's like, Jesus, starting to have a Fed, just like literally give free money to anybody who asks for it and be done. Yeah. Well, you know, again, there's a there's that's not exactly true. Um, you know, er, er, everybody runs to the currency destruction standpoint, right? When your asset swaps are not deflationary, right? Or not, sorry, not inflationary. It's actually deflationary. Um, so everybody runs to this, and I, I, I can tell that you've had people on this past week because I've been getting a slew of emails about this particular topic all week long. It's like, I heard the currency's going to zero, and, and it's like, no, that's not going to happen. Um, but look, in, when but, you're but doing be, Let me be super clear about the question. The question wasn't like with this particular situation with these banks. It's more, does it keep hiking, right? Does it? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. but first of all, we got to understand QE because that's the Fed's choice. The Fed has two choices here, either hike rates or do QE. That's it. Yeah. That's the binary fork in the road. So you've got to pick what do you want to fight. You want to fight inflation or you want to fix the banks. So QE is not inflationary. QE is actually deflationary because all you're doing is an asset swap with banks, right? It's not printing more money and putting it in the system. What created the inflation we have is when you print money and send it to households. That creates inflation because it's a supply-demand imbalance. Yeah, let me just tweak what you said there, though, because QE is inflationary for asset prices in a lot of cases. I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm talking about inflation in terms of consumer prices. Got it. Yes, okay. it does create, absolutely to your point, it inflates asset prices because it injects liquidity into the financial system. Where? At the major banks, which are the ones that get access to QE. They're the ones that buy you know, $100 billion worth of bonds from the treasury and then sell or swap that asset with the Fed who then credits their account at the Federal Reserve. And then, of course, they use that to go there. And, and again, this only works if you're J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. It doesn't work for the regional banks because they don't have access to prop desks. They don't have access to trading desks, but J.P. Morgan does. So they're able to, to take that, that liquidity and move it to the markets. And a lot of people say is like, oh, QE doesn't affect the financial markets at all. There's an 85% correlation between changes to the Fed's balance sheet and the stock market. I'm actually surprised it's not higher, <laughs> but okay, well, you, that's still well, high. You, yeah, it's very high, but you get some fluctuation, you know, things happen in the markets, the economy, right? So, um, but anyway, there, it's a very, very high correlation between the two. So, you know, it, it, it is a, a very important point that, so now the Fed is, is, is at this crossroad that you know, I've got to either choose to fight inflation or I've got to solve the bank problem. And I don't know what the answer is. Next Wednesday, we're going to find out. My suspicion is he's going to hike 25 basis points next week and then, and then mention the banks in the language and start using verbal accommodation to try to start calming everything down while still trying to hike rates. But this next rate hike may be the last rate hike. We'll find out. All right. Well, I want to put up a, a chart here from uh, the CME FedWatch tool um, yeah. just to show how 
how extremely uh, how extreme sentiment shifted in such a short period of time on what the Fed was going to do. Yep. So right now, the odds of the Fed um, uh, pausing, like not making any hikes, is uh, 43%. And uh, the hike of a 25 basis point, or the odds of a 25 basis point hike are 57%. Just one week ago, there was zero percent odds of it uh, being a pause. Pausing, yeah. yeah. And uh, and then uh, let's see here, uh, 40, 60 percent of a twenty-five basis point and a forty percent uh, of a fifty basis point. And what's interesting is I, I looked at that chart probably about twenty-four hours ago, yeah. um, and and it was it, it was even different than what it is right now. So it's kind of going all over the place. But the point there is is that um, in just seven days we went from like. Um, in fact, I think if you go back like eight or nine days, the probability was highest of a 50 basis point hike, right? So yep. all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, the Fed's going to now stop or pause, or whatever, right? So it'll be super interesting. I don't know um, if we're just taking bets out here. I'll, I guess I'll cast my bet for um, uh, that uh, that he will that he will hike. Well, he will protect. He will continue hiking. He will not um, pivot yet to or capitulate yet to protect the banking system because i don't think what's going on right now is at the level where he has to worry about like it, it, it's a meltdown in progress that i've got to stop the inflation fight for i think it's got to be a bigger problem for him yeah, to put no, down the inflation sword no i agree with you and that's what i'm saying he'll hike 25 basis points and he'll mention what's it's like hey we know there's some stress in the financial system we're paying very close attention to it you know, it's not risen to the point. You know, we put some tools into place to make sure depositors are covered. He'll, he'll make those kind of notes, right? But the problem is, is that if he if he pauses and he says, hey, if he does not hike rates next Wednesday, the problem with that is, is that he runs the risk of basically losing control of the market at that point because the market's going to go, oh, sh shoot, there's something. <laughs> There's something, there must be something really wrong with the financial sector, even more so than we thought. I mean, like, right. it must be worse than we thought. We're, I'm, I'm going to go sell everything now, right? And so the, the risk that he runs is by pausing, he scares the market into thinking there's something worse out there than there really may be. And you get a very big drop in the markets that he can't control. And then he's forced into actually starting to cut rates sooner and, and doing QE. So- well, th that could very well happen. And what's so ironic or on point about that is you and I have been saying for a long time that the market may get the pivot it wants, but not this for the reasons it wants, reasons that are totally not, not bullish, right? And, and that's a great example. And that's not even a full pivot. <laughs> that's yeah. just the pause, right? But you know, you and I have been saying for a while um, that the, the best course of action for the Fed, and we were saying this you know, months and months ago, was to pause, right? It's like, hey, you, we, we've got this crazy train of shockwaves of lag effects coming our way. And the Fed, you know, as you just said, pretty much one of the very early, one of those shockwaves just hit and it, you know, already the banking system's kind of stumbling here, right? Like probably shouldn't tighten and just wait to see what's happening here, right? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't know, we'll see. But but having talked to Lacey Hunt for this um, this conference, um, you know, totally understandable that that inflation, the, the Fed's got to have confidence that inflation uh, is is dead here, right? It just needs to kill that dragon without 
killing the banking system in the process, right? The problem, so, is, so the problem is, though, that dragon ain't dead yet. Because if you look at the last inflation report, core inflation barely came down. And core inflation X housing actually went up. So, you know, what the Fed pays attention to is core inflation. And that's not coming down. It just I know. Rate hikes, it's not coming down. So th this is a real problem for the Fed between, again, now they're, uh, I wrote an article um, uh, for this, actually this weekend's newsletter, um, talking about the rock in a hard place. I mean, this is the proverbial rock in a hard place for the Federal Reserve. And and no out, no matter which outcome they pick, I mean, you've either got to pick rock or hard place. That That's it, right? you got to pick one or the other. There, there's no win. Yeah. <laughs> there's no win, right? And, and that's the problem. And, and, the, and the risk is you pick wrong, things get bad really fast. So, so that, this is another reason we just, you know, I, I don't know how this is going to turn out next week. But this is why we cut our equity exposure last week and this week, even more just, you know, because I don't know where we're going to wind up. Maybe the market will rally off to the moon. That's fine. I can put capital back to work. What I can't do is recover lost capital. So right. I'm just putting capital aside right now going, let this sort itself out and then I'll put money back to work. That, that, that sounds very prudent. And, and you know, really here, um, you know, I've, it's rocking hard place. It's really choosing do I want to die by fire or ice? Right? Do I do I want to die? You know, do, do I want to unleash? They got to be equal. They got to be equally painful, right? So it's yeah, got to well, be like fire or electricity. Okay. So well, <laughs> okay, whichever you want. But but basically, I, we either I'm choosing that that we're going to have. I'm going to unleash inflation that that we can't stand, right? right. Or I'm going to I'm you know, going to kill this banking system, and we're going to have you know, a, a massive banking crisis on our hands, right? Neither is good, like you said. What, what I find so frustrating, and we've opined about this in the past, is, look, this is a problem largely of the Fed's own creation. It's had help, right? But but this was an avoidable destination. But for years, it's been obvious that this is the corner we were going to get stuck in. And you and I have been hand-waving about this forever, right? So whatever, we're here now. I, I just lament the fact that we don't have the kind of dialogue from our leaders the way that we used to have back like I'll I'll just pull the the FDR era right where it's just like hey we got a problem everybody and let's we can cast blame on how we got here all we want but we got a problem we got to find a way out of this and there's no pain free way so folks this is the way we're choosing we're all going to have to sacrifice this is what we need you to do this is what we're going to do these are the you know this is how we're going to make the banks take their haircuts but this is the thing that we're going to you you're going to have to deal with because if we don't do this you know here's the bigger bad that's going to happen right that's sort of just an adult sized conversation about what's going on so a people can plan right so they don't slam yeah. into this problem going you know blind right which is what's happening right now um, and, you know, we as a nation can maybe start having dialogues about like reality versus just fantasy land. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Even Reagan was really good about that. I mean, you know, we don't have to go all the way back to FDR, but he 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 had those kind of conversations. Kennedy had those conversations. Reagan had those conversations. Yeah. Ever since Carter Reagan, did, yeah. Carter did too. Ever since Reagan, I don't know what happened post Reagan, but we just not elected good leaders. And you know, and they're not they're not willing to stand up and, and do what's necessary politically to get us here. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of those conversations where, you know, the president comes out. And he says, look, we've got a problem with the banking sector. We're working on fixing it. I need you not to go panic and go take all your money out of banks. It's just gonna make the problem worse. Just you're you're you know, you're going to be taken care of. It's fine. 
just relax here a bit. We're going to close the banks for a week and that'll stop your bank runs. We're going to close banks for a week. You know, any debt you've got, it's, they're all going to be put on pause for a week until we sort this out. You know, however you want to approach it, right? Um, but you got to have that conversation and, and you're right, pull everybody into this. And, and first of all, you would bring a lot of this diversity back together, right? You start unifying. The, one thing about America that's always been true is that no matter how divided we are on political beliefs, if there's an event that requires our solidarity, we come together for it. World War I, World War II, 9-11. Yeah, I mean, it's just when there's a crisis, Americans come together to solve it. That's the great thing about America and, and the great thing about capitalism. And we need to get back to that. And and you're absolutely right. If we had a president that that you know could lead that way, we could start working this you know working on this problem. Now, you know what I figured that you know, and again, I want to be real careful with what we're talking about. I don't want anybody to walk away from this conversation today going, "Oh, Lance and Adam said the the entire financial system's about to blow up." I'm, we're not saying that at all. We're not. And, and to be clear, too, we're talking about longer term implications, right? Nothing that I just mentioned there about these big risks. Do I think? next week is the reckoning, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think the Fed's going to try to thread the needle on this. I think that they're going to try to hike rates and then do a lot of financial backstops. And between the Fed, the Treasury, and the FDIC, try to, to thread this needle of keeping the banking sector afloat while they're still trying to hike rates and, and quell this inflation thing. It's going to be a hell of a juggling act. And, and if he pulls this off, he will deservedly you know, need the title of maestro from Alan Greenspan, <laughs> you know, to 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 take that title. Um, but you know, this is you know, I think some, I think you know that the risk is, as we're talking about, you know, the risk is is that he's not able to thread that needle. The risk is that something does kind of break, you know, financially and economically, and we get that recession we're talking about. And in fact, that's a that's a big factor here uh, to come back to before we leave this conversation is this is going to pull forward the the, the recession as well. Um, but, you know, I think they'll try to thread this needle. But again, the risk is outsized that he can't, which is another reason for raising some cash. Yeah. Um, and what's so interesting about this, and I'm curious if, if you would say the same thing, Lance. You know, I'm no fan of the Fed. Uh, I can sling a lot of criticism at Jerome Powell's, Jerome Powell's way, particularly, you know, for his famous pivot and all that stuff. Uh, certainly for, you know, continuing to stimulate all through 2021. Um but that being said, I'm rooting for the guy right now. It's, everybody is. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I'm really hoping this pilot can do whatever magic with the plane <laughs> he's able to do here, right? He's Denzel Washington in what, 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 that movie Flight, where he turns the plane over. Yeah, that's uh, that's Alan Greenspan right now. Uh, I mean, you mean, you mean Trump Trump yeah. yeah. Um, I hope that wasn't too bad of a Freudian slip you just made there. Um, yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I also just before we leave this topic, because um, I want to get to a more interesting and fun topic for everybody, um, is uh, I mentioned I talked with Lacey uh, and he said, look, he's, he said, I understand what the Fed's trying to do, and it really does need to get inflation under control. He thinks it's going to. He's like, that fight, we're going to win. Um, yeah. And we sort of likened it to like, you know, uh, a mortally wounded bull elephant. Right. It's still it, it, you shoot it. The, the, it's a mortal wound. But that elephant tramples a lot of things before he just kills over and dies. Right. So that's probably what's going on. So what Lacey says to, to totally mix my my metaphors here, um, <laughs> the, the Fed, the Fed was fighting the deflation dragon. It then had to put down that sword to fight the inflation dragon because that was the more immediate threat. Yep. It's now in the process of hopefully killing that. And if it is indeed successful, <laughs> we then have to remember 
it's got to pick up that other sword and fight the much bigger deflationary dragon that still remains, right? So <laughs> you talked about a recession on its way. Um, I think, it, or this accelerating recession, I, I agree with you. I think it's likely true. When and if ever CPI gets back down under 3% or whatnot, I think the days of worrying about inflation are, are going to quickly disappear in our memories. And we're going to be really talking about deflation again. Well, and then the reason I said this, uh, you know, the, the thing about this financial situation we're in right now is that this is going to kill bank lending, period. I mean, now all of a sudden, you know, these banks that are out there going, man, I've got a collateral problem over here. And so remember, there's two ways that banks make money. They make loans to businesses or individuals, right? They collect the interest income. Uh, the interest income, the, the difference between the interest rate they charge and what they borrow from the Fed or from the system, that's their profit margin, right? And this is all regional banks. Now, again, because major banks don't have the investment, uh, they don't, these regional banks don't have the investment banking revenues and all that. So solely dependent on lending. The other side of it is, is they buy bonds and they capture the spread there. So you know, that's their income. So all of a sudden, if my collateral is being depressed and I'm worried about the Fed coming in and shuttering my business, the first thing I'm going to stop doing is making loans. And so all of a sudden, I think we could see lending standards just lock up. And that's going to bring forward that recession by probably a quarter. So, you know, I was expecting maybe a recession showing up first, second quarter of next year. We now may be looking at that at, you know, late third, fourth quarter of this year, potentially depending on how, how much these lending standards lock up. But to your point, how do you kill the inflation dragon? You kill the inflation dragon with a recession. And so that's to Lacey's point, you know, and this is what we said for a long time, is that inflation is a temporary thing. Deflation is the bigger concern for the Fed. And when you start getting, inflation is not going to stop at 2%, by the way. When inflation comes down to two, it's going to keep going because you'll be in a recession, you'll be heading towards zero, and then that deflation fright becomes a much bigger issue for the Fed because that's a hard thing to break. Uh, yeah, it, it is. Um, and of course, here, um, this is a little bit like monetary chemo, right? Where you're you're using a poison to, to a certain extent to bring to kill inflation. But if you have too much of it, right? You know, we go from recession into some big deflationary issue that that we really wish we didn't have, right? So it's gonna it's gonna be very interesting to see what what plays out from here. Now the Fed is convinced it knows how to deal with with that type of stuff because it just means print more money again, which of course, you know, may get us right back into an even bigger issue. But we'll we'll yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll wait to to rail about that. All right, so. Last week, Lance, you gave an update that um, one of your lowball bids for a house got accepted. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and you, you, you gave a little teaser of like, and hey, I'm getting a really affordable mortgage rate out of this, and I'll explain how. So yeah. I got a ton of comments and questions <laughs> from people of how is he doing this? And you know, a lot of them were pretty creative in terms of what yeah. they thought you were doing, and a lot of them it's, involved the mafia. Yep. I, so I'm, can, I can have you good, elaborate? I have good connections. <laughs> yeah. with veto <laughs> exactly no so so yeah so first of all we close on monday um i went to the bank today got my cashier's check so we're all set to close uh monday so one um, more guy just taking money out of the the banking system yeah you know timing couldn't have been better i was actually kind of worried about that because i was over the insured deposit limit because i was putting all this this capital together for the uh the house closing and I was like, uh, <laughs> so, so timing actually kind of worked out well. So I'm not, I'm not real upset with that. Um, 
but yeah, so so look, there's there is a lot on the internet. I see this often uh, on the internet with people talking about you know be your own bank, and and a lot of the stuff that they tell you is entirely wrong. So you know, and 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 the way that I'm getting, I am getting a four point four percent mortgage on my house, but I'm borrowing the money from my whole life insurance policy, and the insurance and the loan rate on my insurance policy is four point four percent interest only. I pay it once a year until at some point I want to pay it off. Or if I die, then the insurance policy will pay it off for me. So, um, you know, but, you know, this is a really great way. Um, and we've talked about this before is, you know, using whole life insurance can be a very, very beneficial tool in increasing your financial wealth. Um, I use my whole life insurance policy all the time to make uh, commercial. I do, I do a lot of uh, hard debt lending. So, you know, people come to me and they say, hey, I've got a financial issue and I need to borrow some money. I charge them outlandish interest rates and I have a 150 or 200 percent collateral on my loan. Um, but there's a lot of that business out there. And so, so your veto is what you're saying. I, I, I technically am veto. And I spent, you know, 25 years fighting full contact martial arts so I can go collect my own money. Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, the, the issue is, though, is, is that, you know, People talk about you know using whole life insurance as as being this this tool. It takes time to get it there. You just can't you know buy a policy and then have this available tomorrow. Um, this is something I've been building up for a very long time, and and it started out much smaller. The amounts I could borrow were much smaller. Now they're getting larger, and I can do larger deals. And over time, it just it, it increases. And this is a great way to build a financial tool for your retirement. Again, we talk about. It's great to invest in the financial markets. It's great to buy bonds. Um, you know, it's great. You know, annuities have a very good place in your financial profile. They're judgment-proof. They grow tax-deferred. Well, the great thing about life insurance, it grows tax-free. And not only does it grow tax-free, you can borrow tax-free from it as well. So it actually has a lot of tax benefits as well because of the way the life insurance is structured. So there's a very specific type of, it does not work with term insurance. It has to be a whole life insurance policy. And you want to overfund the policy. You just don't pay the premium. And so you have to kind of back into what you buy and how you buy it. But what you want to look at is something that you have to commit to a program, just like anything else. Like I'm going to commit to putting $22,500 a year into my 401k plan, you have to commit to putting a certain amount into the, into the policy every single year and you can't miss it because if you miss it and don't make the payments, it, it messes up the whole thing and it starts eating into whatever capital you built to pay the premium. And if you don't have enough premium there, you potentially you know, lose the policy. It's, it's, it's a mess. So don't, don't go into this with like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this and then I'll just miss a year here or there and won't make my premiums. You can't do that. You have to be committed to doing this and doing it regularly. But if you do it right and you and you structure it correctly, it can be a very, very beneficial tool to building wealth long term. And it can do things like this in a high interest rate environment. I can borrow much cheaper and I'm not going to do this permanently. When rates come back down, I'll take out a full mortgage on my on my house and then pay off the insurance loan. And then I'll have that money available to go back to doing my hard money lending again. So you know, these are the type of things that you can do. And, 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 you know, but when you think about this, you don't buy the policy for the coverage. You buy the policy amount for how much you can save every year. 
So in other words, I don't want to buy a million dollar policy if I can't commit to $6,000 a month going into this to overfund it as, as fully as I can, because there's a limit to how much you can overfund a policy before it becomes a modified endowment contract and all becomes taxable. I know this is very confusing, just follow through real quick. Um, but there is a, a maximum amount you can fund. So, so say, this is how much money I can fund and then back into, with your insurance agent, back into what the face value of that policy would be to meet that maximum funding requirement. And then you can always increase it later if you want, but that's where you want to start. Okay. Um, I'm going to assume you probably lost a number of people in the details yeah, yeah. there, but that's okay. Um, at a very high level, you are using uh, insurance, full life insurance, as a way to basically um, build wealth over time. Yep. It grows tax-free and you are able to, to basically loan yourself out of that amassing bunch of wealth uh, for projects that you want to fund in your life, right? And you right. owe that back to the, the insurance policy. Um, right. And when you borrow from the policy, you're able to borrow at favorable rates. So in this case, you're getting a mortgage at what you said, 4.4 versus the prevailing, right. I think it's like 6.6 .6 right now. Right. And, and, the, and the great thing about this is, is that, so let's just use some fantasy numbers here real quick. So let's say I've got, so when, when you pay into a, a policy, you pay your premium. And so the premium pays for the life insurance itself. Now I can pay in more, put in more than that. there's a limit. I said that you cannot go over, but you can ask your insurance company and say, well, how much can I overfund my policy? Well, that, that extra money you put in falls into a bucket of cash and that cash has an interest rate attached to it. And so that cash just accumulates every year as that interest rate is there just paying into that pile of cash. So that, that, that pool of excess paid in capital is what you can borrow against. Now, here's the beautiful thing about it. Let's just say that I've got 500,000 in cash available to borrow, and that is growing at 4% a year. I can borrow 250 of it to go do a project that I then am going to loan out money at 10% on. So I've got money coming in at 10%. And I've got a loan against my policy at 4.4%, at right? So I've got the spread on the money I'm making in. And then eventually when I pay that money back, then I have that money available loan. But the interesting thing is, is that even though I borrow 250 out of the policy, the policy is still growing at $500,000 as if all that money's there. Even though I borrowed against it, that 500,000 is still accumulating. Right, you, you took 250 out, but the, the annual 4% interest that it's earning is, is if, if you had the full 500,000 there. That, that's correct. So you really get this leverage benefit within the policy. And again, it's, it's judgment proof. It grows tax-free. It creates a whole lot of benefits for estate planning and tax planning and, and a whole variety of other things. So, you know, if, if you have, if, if you're really interested in it, you know, we can do a whole presentation on it where we can do charts and graphs. Well, that, 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 that's where I was going with very this. It gets very complicated, com you know, confusing very quick as you, as you understand. Yeah. And I've heard this referred to in the past as private banking or infinite banking. There's all these marketing terms that have been put on it. And you're yeah. right. There's, there's a whole host of people out there, especially on the internet, um, who I wouldn't necessarily follow their advice on this. But, but this is something that has actually existed for a long time. And you clearly are an active user of it. Um, and so two things. Um, one, um, folks, if you are interested in seeing a webinar like we've done on bonds or retirement planning or whatnot, 
on this topic, uh, let us know in the comments section below. Uh, if there's enough interest, we'll definitely do one. We'll get Lance and his team to give charts and really make this thing very understandable for folks. Because Lance, you, you said many times, you have to do this the right way yeah. to both maximize the benefits, but, but more importantly, to make sure that you don't break th this insurance structure and, and then lose all these benefits. Um, now, uh, I do remember also, uh, it's probably about a year ago in one of our Ask Anything, you know, monthly Ask Anythings with our advisors, I remember you making the comment like, man, if I was starting off again, yeah. <laughs> I'd have just used this strategy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would have. If I was, you know, if I was 20, 25 again, um, it, uh, boy, that'd be great. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, screw everything else. I, I would just do this. But look, I mean, you know, honestly, if, if I and then I tell my kids this all the time is and, and this is where the vast majority of Americans have gone horribly wrong is that we live first and then we try to figure out how to save later. What, I, what I'm, I'm drilling into my kids is, is that when you get paid, 30 percent of everything you make goes into savings. Step one is when you're first coming out, fully fund that 401k plan. And, and so for most people, 30% of their income early in life is going to be funding that 401k plan. 22500 a year, that's going to eat up 30% of your income or more. And that's great. And then once you get to that ability to where you can fully fund your 401k plan, the next thing I would do is start overfunding a life insurance policy. And if you do those two things for 30 years, you're going to be fantastically well off for retirement. If I could just get everybody to do that, forget the stock market. That's that's after that. So now I'm doing 401k plan. Now I'm doing you know my fully funded life insurance. Then I invest in the stock market and take some risk to build some additional capital. That's fantastic, right? So you just layer these things up in line. But you know, if I could push, like I said, 401ks first, life insurance second, stock market investing third, do it in that order you'll never worry about money in your life. That's a really important statement. I just wanna make sure that folks really, really sink that in. Um, all right here, well, maybe too, if we do this um, webinar, Lance, we can we can go through that again, but 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 give people advice on, hey, here's how to get your kids, you know, if you're, you're a parent of kids, especially children that are entering adulthood, how can you get them started with this advantage early in life? Because as you're saying, it makes it a massive deal because I mean, this stuff grows tax-free, like you said, as I understand too, and I don't want to get too into the weeds, but I think the money that grows inside this, this insurance um, structure is th there's a cap on how well it's ever going to do because they put a floor in there. I know, I know I've seen some of these policies that basically say, unless the insurance company goes out of business, you're not going to have a negative year, right? right? Like if the market goes bananas, you may give up a fair amount of that upside, you know, after a certain threshold. But you're not going to have a year where you're down, you know. Yeah. Well, the way my policy, at all, maybe. Right, right. And so there's different types of policies, and it's very important that you under, that you understand the policy you're getting into. My policy is a flat rate every year. So at the beginning of the year, I get a statement that says our interest payment this year is going to be X percent. And so, and and for the last 130 years, it's ranged between four and six percent. And so every year, it just compounds at four percent. And, and, and it may not sound great, right? But I don't care about that because again, that that interest income on that money, I don't care about because I'm using the tax-free proceeds of that to make 10, 12, 15%. So I don't care about that 4%. I'm compounding elsewhere. Right. As long as you feel like you can break the guy's legs and actually get paid, but yes. Which I can't. So that's completely <laughs> okay. 
And but yeah, but but again, you know, look, I I I have a special niche in what I do. Um, you know, on that side of my business, I also invest in markets and I do other stuff as well. So that's not all I do. I do invest in markets. I have I I invest money in my own portfolio. <laughs> don't, don't worry about. It. I'm just saying this is another. You know, I diverse. I want to diversify my businesses uh, of of how I, I generate money. So you know, but the important thing is is that you know you know you can actually have to your point. There are policies that have variable caps that you can do. I don't like those as much because I don't want the variability. I hate variability. I want to. I I know I can count on certain things to happen. And if I've got money, at, you know, loaned out on the other side, I'm I'm working spreads. And so right. again, I told you back in the day, I used to work for banks, you know, managing CD deposits all on spreads. So this is a spread. This is a spread product for me and how I work. Okay, I, I want to interrupt you though, just because I don't want people to think that like, oh, well, I don't have that experience, and I'm not a martial artist, so this may not work for me because I'm. Not I try. Be... I'll I'll come collect for you. Okay. I talk to me, but I'll come collect for You'll you. Take your vig, yeah, okay. Um, but but basically, people, this is a great wealth building tool, even at the four yeah. percent, without doing the arbitrage of the hard money lending yeah, or yeah. something equivalent, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, look, the the one thing that people forget, and, and look, this is this is a valuable lesson is that stock markets do not compound at 8% a year. Okay. And you know, you'll hear this all the time. Well, markets grown at 8% a year on average since 1900. Yeah, that's true. But your money hasn't grown at 8% on average every single year, because when you have a down year of 20%, it wipes out years of compounding. Right. You only compound returns. You know, you know, everybody wants to quote this whole line that, you know, it's the, the secret to wealth is the power of compounding, as Albert Einstein once said, it's the eighth wonder of the world. Okay, it is if you get 8% every single year, but the first year that you destroy your capital, you destroy the compounding. A real quick, simple example, five-year five year time timeline, right? Year one, I make 10%. Year two, I make 10%. My average rate of return is 10%. Year three, I make 10%. My average rate of return is 10%, right? Mm -hmm. So- Year year four, I lose 10% of my money. In year five, to get back to a 10% average rate of return, I've got to make a 33% return. That's the problem with, with, with losses in the market is because as your money grows, those losses become much larger on a percentage basis. So, so again, 10% decline on $130 is an example is not $10, it's 13. So, you know, you've got to make all that back up the next year. And then the 10% that you're behind from the year that you didn't compound at 10%. So it's actually 23%. So it, it just, the math just gets wacky really quick. And so this is why, you know, so many people, even though they've invested in the markets, they've never grown capital well. But if you can get something that truly compounds, Ben Franklin um, and his kind of family estate fortune that he built over time, he only would allow money to be lent out at a guaranteed interest rate because that it truly compounds money over time. And this is the thing that people miss. Yeah, math will tell you the stock market's a better investment. In reality, fixed income returns are a much better investment over time. All right. And so again, just to remind folks, this insurance vehicle we're talking about, it gives you that dependability. I mean, there's always risk somewhere. And I think the, the real risk here is that your, your insurance company, you know, goes belly up, but- a lot of the companies offering this have been around for over a hundred years, right? So you want to work with one of those guys. Um, and what you're giving up is is some of the, the, the you know, 
upside potential, but you're you're locking in the the ability to be protected from years of loss, right? Okay. The only other thing too that this has that kind of comes on as gravy is it's an insurance policy, yeah. right? So you end up croaking, you know, before you get to enjoy all the benefits of here. Well, at least your family gets a big fat check, right? Well, yeah, because like like for instance, if if I you know just throw out some numbers, right? Let's just say I've I've got a, a million dollar policy, and you know I build up a million dollars worth of cash inside the policy as well. So it's got a $2 million value now. So I borrow a million dollars out of the policy and go do whatever I want to do with it. So I've got a $2 million policy. I borrow a million. I die. The insurance company pays off the million and it gives my wife a million bucks, the face value of the policy. So, you know, it's so from an estate planning standpoint, you know, it's very lucrative uh, to, 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 Pay off potentially if you've got an estate uh, state tax issue. Potentially, uh, you can put a life insurance policy inside of an uh, what's called an islet, which is a life insurance trust. And you pass away, that insurance policy pays off all of the estate taxes, passes everything to the kids tax free. So, you know, it's just got from a estate planning standpoint, from a, a life management standpoint, from an asset protection standpoint, from a spousal protection standpoint, it can just play so many different roles. Great. Okay. So again, folks, if there's interest in learning more about this, let us know in the comment section. If it's high enough, we'll do one of those uh, webinars. And folks, if you see me ever here, you know, with a black eye, maybe my arm in a sling, and I say I just, uh, you know, walked into the door, <laughs> you can read between the lines and know what's going on. But I told you to quit borrowing money from me. <laughs> um, all right. Look, um, I, I want to get to your trades um, yeah. real quick. I'm just going to I'm just going to note a few things that we were going to discuss. We can discuss them at like uh, next time. Uh, I just pulled up some stats on the housing market. Um, the route is is global at this point in time. Two thirds of the economies um, of the OECD economies have seen housing price declines for their most recent quarter of available data. So we're seeing housing markets basically roll over uh, across the world now. Um, there uh, was a quote I, I ripped out of the, one of the latest headlines that, that banking worries are making buyers even more conservative, um, which is interesting. Uh, you know, the banking crises, as you said, Lance, are going to probably pull in the recession. They're probably going to add fuel to the fires of the housing correction. Um, what is interesting, and maybe we can talk about this later on, is money has been rushing in uh, to treasuries and whatnot. Um, and so yields have been coming down on the longer end of the curve. So in some ways, that's making mortgages a little bit more affordable for folks. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that push and pull plays and just, here. Just by the way, Adam, exactly what I said was going to happen last year. I said the first blush that you get some type of economic recession or financial event Yields are going to plummet. That's exactly what's happened because it's always that rush. That's all. It's always that rush for safety, and that's the first reflex action of the markets. And so, you know, this is this is why, you know, we keep saying that, you know, despite all this narrative out there that, you know, uh, you know, interest rates are going to the moon and and you know that we're going to default on all of our debt. I was like, I keep saying, no, that's not going to be the case. As soon as you have a problem, money's going to fly into treasuries for safety, and here you go. Here, here you go. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned that. So last week, you had said, hey, we actually started moving some money out longer on the curve, but it was a start, right? You you yep. weren't pushing all the chips over there yet. Um, and so uh, ha have things accelerated here? And now this is the point at which yields are starting to come down? Or is this kind of a knee-jerk reaction? Then you expect yields to go higher before you get the big 
you'll drop your hoping for. Yeah, yeah. So, no, so technically, um, there's a lot of very bullish things happening with bond prices. And so again, this is why we've started, you know, increasing, uh, you know, our bond exposure. I do think that you're going to get a, a little bit of a reflex in yields higher. And I think that could happen next week if the Fed hikes rates by 25 basis points. Um, I think you get a knee-jerk reaction on yields to you know pop up a little bit, or if you get some type of further financial bailout initially, yields will pop up a little bit. Um, that'll be a buying opportunity. So you know, but we we now have buy signals kind of across the board on on bond prices. So now just we're to the point of you know buying dips basically on bond prices or buying dips in yields, uh, or, or or sorry, uh, uh, buying spikes in yields. Um, and, and starting longer duration. Okay, I, I want to talk about this more next week because um, okay. there are some some bold statements that your partner Michael Leibowitz made at the Wealthion conference I uh, that I don't want to share do, yet because I, I want I want the conference goers to get first access to that information. But yeah. it's something we should definitely talk about uh, next time. Yeah, um, by the way, though, whatever he says, I'm not liable for. So just. <laughs> Uh, as long as you give him, I think he, I think he needs that from you more in reverse a lot more. Um, so I just, on housing real quick too, price drops uh, are now happening in double digits in major metros. Um, again, Nick Jurley, who's at the conference, gives a ton of data around this, but uh, just two cherry pick data points. Uh, the Oakland Metro is down 24% now since just May. Um, Austin is down 21% since last May. So we're beginning to see some real gut-wrenching price declines already. It's not even been you know a year into this. Um, and then uh, let's see, on the layoff side, uh, layoffs are continuing. They were in the headlines. They're out of the headlines right now because we're all worried about the banking system, but that doesn't mean they've gone away. Yeah, They're continuing. That contagion continues in other uh, industries besides tech. Um, Krispy Kreme donuts, <laughs> not exempt. Tyson Foods, together, they're laying off over 2,000 people. Hey, Johnson you, you, Johnson, you, pardon me? You know it's bad when you're laying off people with donuts. I mean, with donuts, yeah. You would think that almost might be like recession-proof. I feel kind of depressed, so I'm going to go get myself a donut, right? Kind of like the, the movie thing. industry, they said. That's the first thing I do. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's bad enough that Krispy Kreme, sadly, is having to lay off people. Um, Johnson & Johnson's laying off over 1,000 Um Going into tech, Meta just announced they're laying off another 10,000. Interestingly, also, they said they're they're closing 5,000 of their open job recs. So, you know, we've talked about how job openings may be kind of overcounted given all the different places they get posted on. We may begin to see a, a, a steady drop in job openings if other companies follow Meta's suit. Um, and interestingly, this was a small number of people, but why Combinator? Right, which is sort of that startup accelerator company, they're now laying off. And this is a good example of kind of what sparked the whole issue for Silicon Valley Bank, which was that the VCs have, are just not putting money into the VC world right now. Right. So the companies that feed off that ecosystem are beginning to die too. Um, all right. Well, let's get to your trades, Lance. What have you done over the past week? So, just uh, again, you know, so last week um, we added to bonds and we sold financials. Um, and the reason was is just, you know, with the initial blush of Silicon Valley Bank, we were just like, you know what, we just don't want exposure to financials until we sort this stuff out. So we just took financials out of the portfolio. Um, and again, it, it, we're not making a call on banks in any situation. We're just simply saying, I don't, I don't know what the risk is, so I don't want the risk. So I just have to ask cash. 
Um, and then this week we took off basic materials and all of our basic material stocks, all of our energy stocks as well, because they are economically sensitive. So if I'm right and we get a pull forward of the recession, I don't want to be long commodity-based stocks and I don't want to be long, I don't want to be long commodities, commodity-based stocks or economically sensitive stocks because of those first ones are going to hit revenue-wise. So really just kind of shifting the portfolio to a position of more cash more bonds, less equity risk. And in our equity risk, we're really focused on, you know, either a, a few minor kind of growth stocks that can weather a downturn economically because they have very uh, ability to, to grow earnings regardless. And then we have some discount value kind of dividend yielding stuff that, you know, has high dividend yields and we're just kind of collect the income for right now. So, but we're, we're getting pretty close to our minimum, our equity exposure and we're very overweight cash right now. Okay, so kind of sort of in a batten down the hatches yep. mode, and you know, understandably, that's the prudent thing to be doing given all the uncertainty out there. Uh, and so, and, as and, we get and real, and real quick, just real quick, yeah. I'm, I'm not making a call on the market. I'm not saying, hey, I think the market's about to crash. That's not why. the The reason for the for the caution is simply I don't know what's going on with the markets right now, and I don't know what the Fed's going to do, and I don't know how the markets can respond. So I'm just going to step aside and let y'all have the fun with it, and then once the dust settles. I'll pick up some pieces. Yep, uh, tons of sense. And so as we get more data in here that begin to inform your decision-making, obviously folks that with, the, with these weekly market recaps are for. So Lance will be sharing that week after week. To note on the Fed, we will have some more insight into what the Fed is gonna do next week. Um, yep. The Fed's having its next FOMC meeting on March 21st, 22nd. So you know, after Wednesday, things should be a little clearer on the policy side, at least. Yeah. Okay. Last, as we just wrap up here, Lance, um, we'll keep this as, as quick as we can. Just a minute or two is fine. Probably, I can't imagine we keep anything to a minute or two, but let's try. <laughs> um, but yeah, this yeah. is from the rant that I was talking about, which is, look, um, it, it, it had help, but but we have this cycle of like the Fed deforms markets, right? It intervenes. The banks take advantage of those deformations and mm -hmm. they often do so recklessly. Right, they do it. They do it to excess in ways they shouldn't be done. The game gets changed. Either the Fed changes it on the market, like it did relatively recently, or you know you get a credit event like the Lehman collapse and the seizing up of the credit system, or whatever. Right, but 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 there's there's some wrench that gets thrown in the gears, and then the banks get in trouble, and then the Fed steps in to rescue the banks. And by saying that, I really mean the big banks, right? And the public loses. And all of these, right? We lose because the distortions create wealth inequality. The monkey wrench then creates, you know, financial losses that we absorb. Uh, there are layoffs of the companies that get impacted. We lose our jobs. Um, we get loss of choice in the banking system because it gets increasingly concentrated, as you were saying earlier. You know, there's a cost to all of this. So there's really sort of a currency debasement element that goes on in all of this, right? So my question is, is like, will this cycle ever end? Yeah, no, it will end um, at some point. In theory, um, the Fed will go to bailout markets, and the market will go, "Don't care." You know, this is you know something is now broken that even bailouts won't fix. We know where this this game ends. I don't know where that is, but there is that point at some point that bailouts won't work. But this is this is the whole problem with markets. I said earlier, and the reason that capitalism is is being you know demonized. It's not capitalism, it's corporatism that's the problem. 
Uh, corporatism is a is is a is a a splinter of this bailout nation that we've gotten ourselves into. And but but again, you know, it's it's like raising children. If my kid runs out into the street in the middle of traffic, and I go out there and I grab him, I bring him back, and I hand him a sucker, and I say, "Don't do that again." What do you think he's going to do the next time that he wants a sucker? I mean, you know. And this is the problem that that we've done with the markets is is we've removed the risk of loss. Look, capitalism in and of itself is Darwinistic. The strong survive and the weak perish. And that's how capitalism is supposed to work. And that's what makes capitalism successful over time. Things that are, are rot within the economy get flushed out. Things that are good and beneficial expand. And that's that creates better economic prosperity for everyone when that occurs. However, when you start this process to where you bail out the weak and you keep the weak alive, we wind up with all these deformations in the economy. Like we have zombie companies in the Russell 2000 that are dependent upon cheap debt just to stay in business. But Which we, is one other time bomb here that we didn't even talk about today, but yeah. Exactly. But this is all part and parcel of this. So, but if you, if you incentivize bad behavior, then why, why would I not do this. Let me give you a good example back from the financial crisis. So during the financial crisis, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and others were basically robo-signing mortgage applications and sending them through and forging documents to get loans. They were evicting people from houses that they didn't even have a mortgage on. But nobody cared at the time because everybody was making so much money. And then we bailed them all out. So we came back after this and we said, okay, you did all this bad stuff. Instead of sending people to jail, we just said, okay, you're going to have to pay a fine. Well, let me ask you a question. If I told you that I could get, make you a billion dollars, but you'd have to pay a hundred million dollars in taxes, would you take the billion dollars? Yeah, you'd take it in the near Right. So if the fines are simply just the cost of doing business, or I should say, if the fines are a, a just the cost of doing criminal behavior, then why am I not going to keep doing criminal behavior? And this is why Wells Fargo keeps getting slapped over and over and over again, you know, opening up fake accounts on people and doing all kinds of other shady stuff. And we just keep, you know, slapping their hands and say, you know, don't do that again. Right. Pay a fine. It's because the rewards are worth the punishment. Yeah, correct. You know, and then you have and then, of course, you always hear these fines. Right. Here's the fine. that You know, here's the fine that goes to somebody. They admit they neither admit or deny any wrongdoing. And we go, OK, they must have not done anything wrong. They paid their fine. It's all good. Let's keep banking with them. So but maybe if we as Americans said, you know what, Jamie Dimon, you're shady as shit. I'm going to take my money and go to my regional bank and I'm going to start putting all my money over here. All of a sudden, Jamie Dimon is not so powerful anymore. Right. <laughs> and, you know, but this is the problem. We don't do that. You know, we complain about capitalism. I, I told you the story about the girl sitting in the coffee shop. We complain about capitalism. We complain about Apple and Microsoft and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and all these people. But yet we keep buying Teslas and Apples and my Macs and everything else. So, you know, if you want to change things, You've got to, the consumer has the power to change everything. If you want to fix the economy, if you want to fix the banking system, you have the power to do it. You just have to be willing to give up the convenience. And that's the thing we don't want to do. We don't want to give up the convenience. You don't want TikTok around? Stop using TikTok. TikTok will go away, right? You don't like Facebook? Stop using Facebook. It'll go away. 
You know, that's how capitalism works. But we don't, we as people don't want to solve the problem. We want somebody else to solve the problem for us. So the Federal Reserve solves our problem by bailing out the big guys. And then we sit around and complain about the fact that the Federal Reserve keeps propping up the big guys, who, by the way, are the members of the Federal Reserve. Right, right. All right. So, I mean, uh, I, I, we could talk for another hour about this. I, I've got a, I've got a nice. <laughs> it's a whole show. It's a whole you. show. <laughs> it is a whole show. Uh, I will, I will ask this question and only ask for a short answer. But is, um, you know, there are two ways that that uh, you know this can be resolved. Right, as we can say, this is this is a bad cycle. Let's break it. Right. Um, I think the odds of that are low, us doing that proactively, given how crony and, and you know, cor corporate, how crony the corporatism is. Um, so we're probably going to get there to your example where it just breaks. Right. The Fed comes to do a rescue in the markets. It, it doesn't revive the markets. Right. So yeah. my question is, is whichever path we take um, that hopefully gets us to a really painful correction. No doubt about that. But then the sun comes out and we we rebuild something that hopefully is a bit more sane and fair. Will we see that in our lifetimes? Nah. Yeah, I think that I, where we see something economically fair in our lifetimes, probably I, I hope not, honestly. I hope we don't see it in my lifetime. I'd prefer the next generation. Because you don't want to live through that. that I don't want to live through it. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, look, the, the bottom line is simply this, is that we as consumers, we are 70% of the economy. 80% of Americans spend virtually all of their money that they make from payroll on the cost of living, whatever that is. We have the sole power to change everything by just changing where we spend our money. If you, you, know, if you want to start changing things, stop buying Apple products, find a small dealer that makes phone somewhere and buy their phone. It may not be as gitchy or gadgety or whatever, but if enough people start making that change, it will have huge impacts on economic outcomes. We have the ability to fix all of these things. We just have to be willing to do it. Yeah. And again, this is for the, the episode we do on this, but that, that is equally true, not just of the banking system and reforming the banking system, but of reforming education, reforming healthcare, reforming food production, right? It's where we all choose to direct our consumer capital, right? That's but we got to leave it here. Um, yep. All right. So a reminder to folks, uh, if you watch this uh, this weekend, it means you did not watch uh, the Wealthy on Conference. And if you're kicking yourself for have, having missed it um, and want to watch the replays, you're in luck. Uh, remember, just go to wealthion.com slash conference, and you can purchase the replay videos of all the presentations all the Q&A, you get the entire thing uh, for the same price as the conference. So you're in luck. Um, all right. And uh, as Lance talked about, you know, it's a crazy market to navigate these days. Uh, and so uh, I, I just going to get up my normal soapbox here and say that just about everybody, and I certainly include myself in this camp, uh, should be working under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who can help you put together you know, portfolio strategy for the type of world that we're in, but then can be your partner in executing against it, especially given how fluid and how volatile things are right now. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, 
perhaps even Lance and his team there at Real Investment Advice. Uh, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, have a free consultation with these guys. Doesn't cost you anything, uh, no commitment to work with them, just a public service that these guys offer. Um, and guys, if you've enjoyed this weekly market recap and would like to see more of them and Lance and I doing uh, our mono a mono thing here, do us a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below. Uh, as well as clicking that little bell icon right next to it. Uh, I was thinking, Lance, in my little plug there for the like button, I should say, if you don't do it, Lance might show up at your house and you don't want that to happen. <laughs> but look, I'll let you have the last word here, buddy. Yeah, look, the most important thing is, is look, a lot of stuff going on right now. Don't be making a lot of emotional moves. Don't, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of commentary flying around everywhere right now. A lot of it, you know, kind of doom and gloom and some people telling you don't worry about anything. There's certainly things to be worried about, but don't make emotional moves. You know, let's just, again, we'll be here every week. We'll just kind of work through this as we go, but let's try to make good, rational, logical decisions with our money. It'll pay better over the long term. All right. Well said. Lance, thanks so much, buddy, for joining me for yet another week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.